It's a privilege to be with you today. It's always a privilege to be someplace to talk about Jesus, isn't it? I'd like to take you back to the spring of another year, 29 A.D. It was the beginning of Christ's Galilean ministry. He'd spent a year in Judea. He was preparing to send his disciples out on a missionary tour. The work had expanded. Helpers were needed. And he chose a hillside just north of the Sea of Galilee. And there, in preparation for the disciples' important work, he ordained the twelve and preached that powerful sermon that has come down with the title, The Sermon on the Mount. Toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he said two verses that the disciples, I don't think, understood, and I don't think anyone in that large crowd understood. You heard it this morning. Let's just read it together again. Enter ye in. Shall we read it? Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. And then the next verse, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Now, I don't think they could understand that at the time. Because, you see, it was springtime. And it's springtime, the world is always full of hope. There were crowds that were following Jesus at this time. And as the disciples looked over the huge multitude, in their minds they saw the future conversion of all of Israel. They saw Jerusalem accepting Jesus. They saw the churches packed, the synagogues packed, to welcome their message. The multitudes were in favor of Jesus, in fact. Needs to be higher. Is this better? I'm sorry. Um, Now is it clear? The multitudes were in favor of Jesus. In fact, some were calling for him to be a king. John's disciples were a little jealous of all the success that Jesus was having. What do you mean, few there be that find it? They told John the Baptist, they said, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold the same baptizest, and what's that next phrase? All men come to him. Few there be that find it. But they would learn better over the next two years. In fact, in only one year, the fickle multitudes forsook him. John 6, 66 From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Never again would they follow Jesus. Never again would his his being in town create even a flicker of interest. In fact, if a friend was going to go, they would speak against the man that had so stirred their hearts only a short time before. It was two years later that Jesus made his final visit 
through the villages and towns of Israel. Luke 13 tells of this story, verse 30, chapter 13, verse 22. And he went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem where he was to be crucified. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? What a difference two years had made. Then they wondered if any would be lost. But now it was time for Jesus to repeat what he had given there in that Sermon on the Mount that should have come as no surprise to them. And so he said, verse 24, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Where were the people? How come there were no enthusiastic crowds now in this final time of Jesus' visit to Jerusalem, toward Jerusalem? How come just a few in each village appeared interested in his message? And these were mostly poor peasants. In fact, some of them were quite, kind of strange. You would have been embarrassed to have them part of the crowd. Not even the disciples realized that this was the final visit of Jesus, his final tour through Israel. No one knew that he would never in person be in their village again. How soon we take advantage and take for granted of the blessings of God. The multitudes had been reduced to a remnant. Why? Well, few of the multitudes really cared. They were too busy. He was no longer a curiosity. Most didn't believe in him. And few would stand alone. You see, if you were going to follow Christ, you risk being considered fanatical. It was to invite the wrath of the Jewish leaders. It was a certain way to be kicked out of the church. As John 9.22, the words... These words spake the parents of a man who had been healed from blindness. And even though their son had been healed, though they had prayed to God for healing for years, when he was healed, these people wouldn't even then confess Jesus. They feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if any man did not confess that he was Christ, did confess, excuse me, if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. And so many hid their belief. They tried to believe in secret, like Peter denying him publicly. This was particularly true of those who were in leadership and he, who did not want to lose their position. John 12, 42, 43, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him lest they should be what? Put out of the synagogue. For they did what? Love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Whose praise do you want this morning? Great Controversy, page 597, has a very interesting couple of sentences. Many are the ways by which Satan works through human influences to bind his captives. Sometimes we worry about his direct influences. But how does Satan also work? 
Just as God has human influences, Satan has human influences. And he binds them as captives. Here's how. He secures multitudes to himself by attaching them by the silken cords of affection to those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Whatever this attachment may be, parental, our parents, filial, our siblings, conjugal, our life's partners, or social, the effect is the same. The opposers of truth exert their power to control the conscience, and the souls held under their sway have not sufficient courage or independence to obey their own convictions of duty. You see, it's not alone when the United States, the image makes an image to the beast and tries to compel people to follow Satan. Right now, there are many who attempt to compel and would keep us bound to Satan if we don't have sufficient courage. And this has been true throughout history. Many are called, Matthew twenty-two fourteen. but what? Few are chosen. Of the many who first responded to Noah, only one family ultimately boarded the boat 120 years later. Only three individuals, a part of one family, escaped from Sodom. Of the three million excited Jews Moses led out of Egypt, only two entered the land of Canaan. Romans 9.27, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, what is that last phrase? A remnant will be saved. Jesus told a parable of the net, Matthew 13, 47. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to the shore and sat down and gathered the good into the vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The gospel net brings in a group, <coughs> but the true gospel separates them out. Not everyone who is baptized will go to heaven. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, <coughs> shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. This was just a few verses after what we had read this morning about uh, few there be that find it. Not everyone who saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Not everyone who begins the journey to heaven will finish it. If you take drug addicts, they go through a program, their chances of staying off well under 50%. Most programs... Maybe not even 10%. And that's true of every kind of addictive sin. People will feebly take, make motions to stop. But ultimately, they're willing captives, not letting Jesus give them the victory. And so Jesus said, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Luke 18, 8. 
in the verses we looked at at the first, enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, the broad way. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and what's that next word? Few there be that find it. Paul gives a warning to us. Hebrews 3, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. You come, and then what do they do? Depart like the multitudes, walking no more with Him. But exhort one another daily while it is called the day, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was He angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned and whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did He swear that they would not enter His rest? but to those who did not, what? Obey. So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering His rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Less than the promises of God, less than the good that God would have given us. Why so few? First, the gate is straight. And second, the way is narrow. Let's uh, look at this straight gate. The word straight is a Greek word, stenos, from which we get the word stenosis. And it means tight or narrow. A gate is an entry. The only entry is narrow. And it's illustrated by spelunking, where you can get into a cave, some cave, but you have to squeeze through. That's the only way to get beyond it. And then there's the narrow way. This comes from the Greek word flippo. It means rough, bumpy, obstructed, as well as without space, narrow. The trail is long, arduous, difficult, strenuous. And so why do people not enter? There's three major reasons. The first reason people don't enter is they love the pleasures of sin. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2.12, people had what kind of, uh, what was uh, it in unrighteousness? Pleasure. Pleasure. Took pleasure. 2 Peter 2.13, unrighteousness as they count it pleasure. Hebrews 11.25, enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And the second major reason why people don't enter is they hate the cost and pains of duty. Sin, you see, has pleasure. Duty has cost. Matthew 19, 22, of the rich young ruler, it says he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. His great, what he considered great possessions, were worth more to him than heaven. And so he bartered away his opportunity to be with Jesus to keep with possessions. And the third reason, they accept false theories, traditions, and standards. 
Let's just look at these. Inclined for the pleasure of sin. What are the pleasures that we like to have? These are forbidden activities we want to continue. These are harmless amusements, but they take time and attention from that which is most important. The good, as one person said, is the enemy of the best. Forbidden friendships. God's Word forbids it, but they're not willing to follow God's Word. The friend on earth is more important than the friend of heaven. And then some people want the pleasure of hating an enemy. And God says, love your enemies. And so they want to keep the pleasure of feeling vengeful thoughts and hateful thoughts. So they won't go to heaven because it's too much fun to hate. Others have pleasure in the praise of men or the abundance of their possessions. All these things tie us to this world. And then we can be inclined against the pain of duty, the condemnation of men. Our desire for flattery. Interesting quotation I read in Testimonies. God has a work for each to do. It is no part of His plan that souls shall be sustained in the battle of life by human sympathy and praise. Some people want a path to heaven that's sustained by human sympathy and praise. He means that they shall go without the camp, bearing the reproach, fighting the good fight of faith, and standing in His strength under every difficulty. God doesn't call for us to stand in our strength, but He does offer His strength as sufficient for our weakness. The pain of duty is sacrifice of time, possession, or our inclinations. Or the renunciation of hurtful habits of life. I was flying in to Ontario. And my seatmate, to my surprise, was the wife of the captain of our plane. And uh, she was telling me uh, she was having a pain problem. Of course, my specialty includes taking care of people with pain. And uh, one of the problems of, of pain includes some of the lifestyles that we adopt. And so I asked her some questions about some of her lifestyle habits. And she told me she didn't smoke. And one of the questions that I asked her. And so uh, she says, no, I'm a non-smoker. She said, oh, I smoke uh, occasionally. So I asked her what that meant. Oh, well, occasionally when I'm under stress or something like that. Uh, well, how often do you feel under stress? Well, a couple, two, three, four times every day. <laughs> and yet she regarded herself as what? A non-smoker. I, uh, I got well acquainted with her. We had a very good time. In fact, I shared her with her what I'm sharing with, uh, with you. We had a wonderful prayer. She grew up, not a Seventh-day Adventist, but a Sabbath keeper. And, um, and so we just had a very... The Lord put us together. But what was keeping her? One of the things that she had been taught as a child, she knew she shouldn't smoke, and in her mind, it was just a little thing that she was doing. Essentially, she wasn't a smoker like many people are smokers, so she was a non-smoker. Has anybody ever been tempted to feel that way? 
with some favorite sin of yours? Or is it just me that could identify with the seat me? And then we are tempted to accept false standards. Uh, I just uh, was, uh, my brother-in-law just gave me this quote this morning. It is through false theories and traditions that Satan gains his power over the mind. This is Desire of Ages 671. By directing men to false standards, he misshapes the character all the time. In school, even in college, we're directed sometimes to have standards that aren't God's standards. But what is God's solution? Through the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit speaks to the mind and impresses truth upon the heart. Thus He exposes air and expels it from the soul. It is by the Spirit of truth working through the Word of God that Christ subdues His chosen people to Himself. Isn't that a wonderful quote? I want to have these false theories, these false traditions, these false standards that are in my mind taken out. And I can't take them out. But God has a plan. It's called the Word of God and it's called the Spirit of God. And when I ask the Spirit of God to apply the Word of God like a surgeon, He begins to cut those things out and heal me. You see, the reason why the majority will not be in heaven is that they want a way to go to heaven without denying a pleasure or requiring a pain. They want a security in sin without effort, trial, or sacrifice. And Satan promises them just what they want. A popular salvation without persecution. A salvation without hardship or pain. A Jesus who carries our cross. But the real Jesus said this, Luke 9, 23, If any man will come after me, let him what? Deny himself and what? Take up his cross daily and follow me. It's not just carrying the cross. It's following Jesus daily. The experience of the Israelites in the wilderness illustrates the Christian's life, their hardships, their difficulties. Uh, Paul said, Now all these things happened unto them, for in samples they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. From the straight gate, from what has been shown me, but a small number of those now professing to believe the truth would eventually be saved. Not because they could not be saved, but for another reason. Let's notice. Because they would not be saved in what? God's own appointed way. The way marked out by our divine Lord is too narrow and the gate too straight to admit them while grasping the world or while cherishing selfishness or sin of any kind. There's no room for these things and yet there are but few who will consent to part with them, their darling indulgences, that they may pass the narrow way and enter the straight gate. Jesus said strive. That word there in the Greek is agonizamo. Oh, I don't know how to pronounce Greek, but you can read it. Your pronunciation. And it's the word we get agony and agonize from. 
It means to agonize or fight. Including this reference, it's used seven times in the New Testament, and generally it's translated fight. It means to have a severe struggle. Is there anything between me and the path of life that needs to be cut loose? Strive, it says. John 18.36, Jesus answered, If my kingdom were of this world, then my, would my servants... It's that same word, strive. Fight. And I should not be delivered to the Jews. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight. Same word. The good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou also art called. 2 Timothy 4.7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course have kept the faith. This is a life and death struggle. Interesting quote, Central Advance, uh, 1903. We are to strive to enter in at the straight gate. But this gate does not swing loosely on its hinges. Don't you like that little expression? It will not admit doubtful characters. We must now strive for eternal life with an intensity that is proportionate to the value of the prize before us. It is not money or lands or position, but the possession of a Christ-like character that will open to us the gates of paradise. It is not dignity. It is not intellectual attainments that will win for us the crown of immortality. Only the meek and lowly ones who have made God their efficiency will receive this gift. But I would not have you think that the gate is straighter than it needs to be. Or the um, journey tougher than it needs to be. Jesus makes the gate as wide as He possibly can. And He makes the way to heaven as smooth as he possibly can. He's not there making it rougher for us. We make it rougher for ourselves. He makes it as easy as possible. My yoke, he says, is easy. My burden is light. Because you see, though the gate is straight and the way narrow, there is one who stands beside us urging us forward, choosing for us like a wise shepherd chooses the path for his sheep, choosing the very safest path, even though it may seem the most rugged. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, he says, and I will give you rest. I saw... One Christian author put it this way, Adventist Home 281, I saw that Jesus knows our infirmities and has Himself shared our experience in all things but in sin. Therefore, He has prepared for us a path suited to our strength and capacity. Aren't you glad for that? And like Jacob has marched softly and in evenness, with the children as they were able to endure, that he might entertain us by the comfort of his company and be to us a perpetual guide. He does not despise, neglect, or leave behind the children of the flock, 
He has not bidden us move forward and leave them. He has not traveled so hastily as to leave us with our children behind. Oh, no. But He has even the path to life, even for children. And parents are required in His name to lead them along the narrow way. God has appointed us a path suited to the strength and capacity of children. The reason why, you see, it seems so hard is because our strength is so weak and we rely so much on that weak strength. I conclude that I want to be among that remnant. The ones that get through the gate and stay on the path. Is it your desire, too, to be among those that don't just get up to the gate and look in? Like the window shopper. Shop, window shop, window shopper. But one that takes Christ at His Word and enters into that narrow way and there holding hands with Jesus follows him safely to the gates of heaven. No, not follows him safely to the gates of heaven, but thank God follows him safely through the gates into heaven. Is it your commitment to be that remnant and strive to enter the narrow gate and stay on the rugged way? If it is, would you just bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, we're thankful that though the gate is narrow, it's just wide enough for you and for me. In fact, Lord, we're thankful it's no wider than that which we wouldn't want to take with us anyway. We're thankful for the safe path, a path that is led by Jesus. We want Him as our Savior and guide. And, uh, we want to be kept close to Him throughout life's journey. We thank You for this opportunity to think of Jesus and to make these commitments. Bless us now as we go into the more sacred service of the spoken word. May your spirit rest upon us as we listen and upon your servant, Pastor Ashrock, as he speaks. And oh, dear Jesus, may the Holy Spirit fall. May revival come, followed by reformation. May it not be just a, a desire that we have, but a commitment that we make. Just for a few feeble hours while we trust in our strength and rely on our feelings. But may we purpose in our hearts like Daniel that you are ours now and forever. We don't know why you want us, but we can understand why we want you. We want to make that trade ourselves of no value, and you of infinite value. 
We thank you for hearing and for answering this prayer. In Christ's name, amen.